Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 24, Control, recorded here just ahead of the Civic Holiday Weekend on July 27th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Death of a Dream, and our outro is Sleepyhead. Well, this is another big, long chapter, but I'm too stubborn to chop this one into multiple episodes this time, so thank goodness it's also a really cool chapter full of lots of great dinosaur stuff, including a velociraptor attack. Corrections! Last episode, I said that Malcolm said that programmers like to leave a trapdoor for themselves in the code, a signature letting people know that, quote, Kilroy was here, but of course, Malcolm had nothing to do with it. I meant Crichton instead. Uh, Crichton put that in there, or maybe even Nedry, not Malcolm. Uh, please forgive me for any confusion that may have caused, and also, we witlessly failed to find the proper title for the post-production team that puts the sound effects into a scene. And of course it's not a gaffer, because it's, like it, you remember this, it's the Foley artist. Using an arsenal of props, Foley artists devise and record the everyday sounds heard in films, television shows, and video games. Noises like footsteps and swords being drawn from their sheaths, or or the swishing of clothing as two people walk past each other. And metaphorically, at work, let's just say, no, I didn't count my chickens before they hatched, but, man, I thought I was pretty sure there was going to be a couple of those chickens that hatched, and they did not. Uh, but it did wind up with a couple extra eggs I didn't expect to find, so um, I don't know what I'm saying here anymore. <laughs> I guess it all comes out in the wash. Dinosaur news. Our dinosaur news today will center around ceratopsian fossils. The first uh, is stuff about ceratopsian skin, and the other is about a ceratopsian battle wound. So here we go. The first paper is not yet published in Nature Portfolio, and it is under review, but it is called The Exquisitely Preserved Dinosaur Skin of Cetacosaurus and the Scaly Skin of Ceratopsian Dinosaurs. The Frankfurt Specimen of Cetacosaurus, SMFR4970, is endowed with one of the most complete coverings of squamous skin in any dinosaur, and is one of the new one of the few non-hadrosaurid ornithischians with in integument covering a large portion of the body, according to the paper. Frankly, the Frankfurt specimen is a better name than the Cloaca specimen, but if you were wondering, yes, this is the same specimen that yielded all that information on the amazing dinosaur Cloaca, which is being stored and studied at the Senckenberg Natural History Museum in Frankfurt. Now, Cetacosaurus is a six-and-a-half-foot parrot-faced animal from the Mongolian Early Cretaceous, first described back in 1923 by the tyrannorific Henry Fairfield Osborne. Cetacosaurs are very well-known animals and are distinctly small-sized primitive bipedal forms of ceratopsians with tall parrot-like beaks. And though ceratopsians, these primitive forms, didn't feature horns or neck frill, uh, these folks be uh, came before all of that started morphing out of their heads. It had rather long forelimbs with four fingers and feet with four functional toes, and they resembled other ornithopods in general body proportions. The specimen is, quote, remarkable for the exquisite preservation of squamous skin, meaning scaly skin in the language of academics, and other soft tissues that cover almost its entire body, says the abstract. 
Quote, newly detected details revealed under laser-stimulated fluorescence reveals the complexity of the squamous skin in cetacosaurs, including several features and details of newly detected and previously described integumentary structures. The scales appear in variations in strongly regionalized areas on the animal, like, quote, truncated cone shapes on the shoulder, whereas other form a, quote, longitudinal row of quadrangular scales on the tail. The cloaca is further described as having a longitudinal opening, or vent, which is a condition it shares only with crocodilians, implying that the cloaca had crocodilian-like internal anatomy, including a single ventrally positioned copulatory organ. And yes, copulatory organ is exactly what it sounds like. The authors have concluded that, quote, scalation was generally conservative in ceratopsians and typically consisted of large subcircular to polygonal feature scales surrounded by a network of smaller non-overlapping polygonal basement scales. A pattern is emerging in the body of evidence regarding skin impressions. A hexagram arrangement of scales present on the limbs of Cetecosaurus and Nasutoceratops is, at this stage, a unique ceratopsian feature. In all ceratopsians where skin is preserved, the flank bears feature scales set into a matrix of smaller basement scales. However, Triceratops is unique in having polygonal feature scales that are only slightly larger than the basement scales and which have a central nipple-like protrusion. Interspecific differences in the architecture of both feature scales and basement scales support early comments on the taxonomic utility of scale patterns in Ceratopsia and dinosaurs more broadly, says the paper's conclusion. The second paper is about Triceratops, the famous late Cretaceous herbivore from Wyoming and the Badlands of the United States, which is among the largest of all known chasmosaurines with solid neck frills and in particular two very long brow horns and a singular nasal horn. You know Triceratops. They're also known as one of the most successful groups of herbivores with long, low facial regions and pronounced beaks. Triceratops is special, especially among chasmosaurs, because it, they didn't have that windowed frill. Chasmosaurs are named after the chasm in their neck frills, the big window or circular shaped openings in their frills. Well, somehow Triceratops didn't have that. It was just solid bone, making it one of the most absolutely solid and massive skulls of any known animal. Triceratops was very strange and very special for this reason. And here's some hot trivia. Triceratops fossils are the most common fossils ever found, asterisk, because the skull is solid bone and therefore less likely to fracture during fossilization, but also because it's from the latest of the late Cretaceous, meaning it's been sitting in the rock for the least amount of time eroding away uh, compared to most other fossils and dinosaurs as well. And there are other factors too, like they're found in very accessible rock formations, which have been poured over by thousands of prospectors over the years as well. And I elaborate on the asterisks. I mean, I read these details somewhere, and I believe them, but I can't confirm whether they're literally true or not. Maybe they're just probably true. I don't know. But I believe in them, and I, I read them somewhere. And for these reasons listed above, that Triceratops is the most common found fossil dinosaur in the world. So Triceratops. Some cool trivia you can impress your friends with. Nonetheless, in, in this news article from the Journal of Scientific Reports, the authors of Histological and Chemical Diagnosis of a Combat Lesion in Triceratops, published on April 7th, 2022, say they say the holes in the Triceratops frill were likely from intraspecies combat. They studied the traumatic nature of the, quote, anatomical variants in their neck frill, which showed, quote, evidence of bone healing and remodeling by microscopy analysis. In the specimen they analyzed, nicknamed Big John, because this Triceratops is even big by Triceratops standards, found in the Hell Creek Formation of South Dakota, the right squamosal bone shows an extra fenestra, 
with irregular margins and signs of inflammation, which means, yeah, he got stabbed in the head with a horn. Microscopy analysis revealed newly formed and healing bone with histological signs typical of the bone remodeling phase, adds the paper saying he was healing up afterwards. They ran a chemical analysis too, which said something about glycoproteins and paraseous osteoid substances, but I'm not even gonna pretend to know what that means, other than they are, I guess, confident as one could be that this is evidence of two triceratops smashing their horns at each other. Quote, the lesion was possibly caused by the horn of another triceratops. The mediolateral diameter equal to five centimeters and shape of the caudal region of the fenestra coincide with those of the apex of the supraorbital horns. Furthermore, the triceratops used their horns in intraspecific combat. So there we go. With the corrections and the dinosaur news out of our way today, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right. My next guest and I met when we were on a class trip to the Osborne Technologies Laboratory where he was bitten by a radioactive spider, but instead of gaining the superpowers of a spider, he instead just became a physics student and then a career physicist who's also very, very radioactive. It's Benjamin X. Lewis. How are you hanging in there, Ben? <laughs> I'm doing well. You gave me that uh, middle name after that uh, superpower game. <laughs> I knew that was going to come into play someday. <laughs> Uh, Ben's tough tough run of bad luck didn't end when he was done being bit by a radioactive spider and, and still not gaining any superpowers, but this poor guy decided he was going to binge the entire podcast in preparation for this interview and read the book because of me, so <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, you listened to every episode, was it, so far, or how many did you get through? Yeah, I think uh, whatever you've released on Spotify, that's my only access to this. I don't have direct line. Uh, access to all your latest ones but uh whatever you released on spotify uh it's been me so i've been li- i've been listening to everyone i really enjoyed it because uh, you know i've been looking for a book club <laughs> and this is in some ways a bit of a book club i mean it is I, now it's two-way communication but i've been looking for a, a book club and, and getting excited about reading books and yeah so i suppose that's true yeah. that's what this is in a way well that's good and I hear different people say they like uh, they like the corrections. Some people tell me they like the interviews. Some people, most people say they don't really care for the the part where I talk about the book. <laughs> and then you, I mean, you get into like really nitty gritty details of how he's writing the book and things that maybe as a physics major I don't catch it on. Right. So as, as a physics major, we kind of just read stuff very boring stuff typically, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we don't catch it on uh, any any sort of. Uh, extracurriculars that the author's doing because really they're just conveying information for the most part. It helps me uh, read fiction better, uh, actually, the, the input that you're, you're putting in there. I'm more, paying more attention to small details. So. Well, there's all different sorts of things you can look at when you read a piece of fiction, uh, and they, they range everything from how the author's writing to what the author might be thinking to what the characters are doing to, to what symbolism is being employed or what is not being employed. And uh, there are all kinds of different messages that are being read. And we can get into some of those in this chapter and in this discussion, I think. I think you've had a couple observations that I know are going to lend themselves to a very interesting per, uh, interpretation of, of what we've been reading. So first of all, you told me that, that you started listening to the podcast and it began to spoil <laughs> part of the novel for you. <laughs> so you had to stop, pause, and then, and then finish the book first, um, which I presume is the correct way to... Uh, to enter into this podcast, you should have read some of the book, anyhow. 
yeah. I don't. I don't think you can enter the podcast as like a read along thing. It's uh, you know like as if it's really like a book club. But uh, you know, I was reading and I was like, oh, well, he's kind of giving away what's happening here, so I better stop listening. So yeah. I, uh, I finished the novel, and then uh, I told you I finished the novel. I'm really enjoying the podcast, and then you invited me as a guest, so I'm excited. So what'd you like yeah. about the book? Tell me, like, the, right off the hop, when you when you finally got, you you'd obviously not read the book all your life. Why, uh, was it what you yeah. hoped for? So, or I mean, what? the story better in the book than in the movie. The movie leaves a lot of, like, like what is going on? Like, they find eggs, and then they just leave them alone in the movie. <laughs> like, That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... The book finishes, and I, I kind of like that some of the, the people that really caused the problem actually are, are end up being uh, terminated by the end of the book. Right? So, <laughs> you're like in the, in the movie, it's kind of like this guy is like, oh, yeah, I want to open this Jurassic Park, and then a bunch of people die, and he's like, oh, yeah, and I'm leaving too with the, with the rest of the crew. And, I, yeah, and it was good that he you know, found his end very fitting, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I also found it, it was also, I'm really into like economy and, and stuff like that. So I'm, I mean, I'm a phys, uh, I studied physics, but uh, I'm into economy, I'm into optics. Uh, I guess that's about where my extent is in terms of my hobbies. So I read a lot of economic books and I found that um, Crichton's uh, commentary on capitalism was very interesting too, in terms of he, uh, he talked about how, I think Wu is the science. The, the, the scientist that he wouldn't go solve cancer because there's no money in it. Right? <laughs> as, soon as, you, as soon as you solve cancer, the government's just going to take it from you, but they can't really just take your dinosaurs from you. And and that's why he decided to go into this part of genetics and, and biology and, and with this company doing this work is because basically he can be making money essentially. And that's why, uh, that's why they, they built this instead of curing cancer in mm-hmm. general, right? So it kind of says like, hey, you know, capitalism doesn't really always serve the best interests of humanity. It, it sometimes serves very distorted interests of humanity. I mean, of course, I know, I know you would love to have dinosaurs over curing cancer maybe, but... <laughs> <laughs> if you could do one, you'd think that you could do both, don't you? Yeah, you know, and, and but the problem is there's no money in curing cancer, so it's and maybe it's a commentary more on how we structure the incentives of of our you know our medical field. Maybe he's actually taking the opposite opinion that we should let them make more money off of cancer treatments. But uh, I have the opinion that he's kind of commentating that because of the way the system's set up, people aren't going to actually solve the problems because the government's just going to take it over if they actually do. Have you seen, there's a Michael Bay film called The Island. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. It was with... Uh, Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. I want to say and, Scarlett uh, Johansson, but I can't recall. Yeah, I think it was Scarlett, yeah. And yeah, I've seen it. And it's like it Jurassic great. Park meets um, Curing Cancer. It's kind of the, if you were to take those two ideas and stick them together... It's cloning people to so that uh, sick people, sick, sick rich people can have a, a source of, of good healthy livers and things like that should they need them in the future. And so they've got these cloned adults living in a, what, a, a prison or a, some sort of college or something. And, yeah, uh, on an island, right? Well, it's not on an island. The island is where they go when they, uh, they pass, like there's uh, this mythological uh, lottery and you get to go yeah. live on this uh, fabulous... Uh, utopia 
And so that's what they tell them. But what they really do is they just go and take their organs out and throw their husks away. <laughs> and which you and McGregor and Scarlett Johansson, yeah, they don't want that. So they escape. And then it turns into a Michael Bay film where everything blows up. Yeah. That was actually filmed in Detroit, I think. So it was a pretty interesting film. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, I guess that's uh, Curing Cancer meets Jurassic Park. Sure it is. There's more. <laughs> yeah, there's more almost like what is a soul and what is a... But these are, yeah, the, the big thing is, yeah, I think it takes people, the the people that bought the the bodies didn't necessarily know that they're growing a whole clone and keeping them on site someplace, right? So, that could be, that could be. I also like Malcolm in some ways, but some of the stuff he, he, he said was really uh, wrong. <laughs> like, like his black body radiation comment yeah. when he was talking about his suit. The black body radiation as an optics guy, I can tell you it's... Uh, your your lights in your house are actually tuned to black body radiation. So when you read like, hey, this is, uh, I don't know, I, I think it's like 3000 Kelvin color, that actually is the black body radiation color that they're trying to mimic. And okay. so black body radiation is when something is warm, a black body is warmed up to a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. That's what color radiation comes out. And it's kind of weird that he's like, yeah, black body radiation. Maybe he's saying that he, he lets out some pretty bright colors because he, <laughs> I don't know, but it, it doesn't make any sense. So from what I, I read into it as best as I could, for what I could understand was that the um, they wanted to study, the so that there was the observation that when something heats up, it begins to emit light. And so they wanted to study to what degree the relationship was between heat and its absorption into something which was uh, black. And, and its relationship to how light is emitted through the spectrum of ultraviolet infrared and the visual spectrum i think and so they created a a test model which was i guess when when you're making an experiment you want to eliminate as many variables as possible so the black body was what appeared to be a, a hole like a very small hole which they shot heat through into a black sphere and so inside of that black sphere there'd be no variables like other lights and things like that to affect theoretically get a pure relationship between heat and its i guess increase and then you could measure the radiation as it emitted uh is a visual spectrum and so that would be the study and then the results of how that energy and light is emitted from the black body would be the results of the black body radiation uh principle (laughs) i'm not sure what the what the outcomes would be called i don't so like how does that relate to it must, sh- in some respects, show how heat is then shed off of, of something. Is that is it just light that they're looking at when they do black black body radiation, or is it also heat, and how you shed heat? Heat, heat, in a lot of ways, is is IR radiation, right? So you're not, you can't just say, you know, it's it's the whole um, the whole spectrum, and, and how you define light, I guess, depends what kind of optical engineer you are. Some optical engineers only define it as a visible light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some optical engineers go from x-rays all the way up to like, uh, you know, very, very high wavelength. So when you're in a higher wavelength, it's, uh, that's actually like a lot of heat. Like we admit a lot of IR radiation as human beings. That's how you can take a camera and you can see, you know, have you ever seen those cameras that like look at IR, right? You can see our heat patterns coming off of us. Like in the, I think it's famous in the predator movie, is it not? Yeah. Predator movie. Yeah. That's perfect example is the predator movie is that. The camera captures your 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 radiation. Mm-hmm. You may not be a black body, but it captures your radiation, right? It captures what you're emitting, yeah. Uh, and because it's coming off its heat and energy, 
you 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 got it pretty right and and i have a actual i've actually used this black body radiation in my my profession mm-hmm. uh, i used to work in lasers and do uh, laser cladding uh it might not be the most osa safe uh, way of doing this but essentially uh we had this laser that we we're going into a black body yeah the beam, beam dump that we had and we had on the other side of the laser we had a um a spectrometer that would measure the temperature essentially so mm-hmm. we had a spectrometer which is something that measures uh the radiation that comes off of something uh and how that works i can go into great detail so you gotta <laughs> stop and and so that spectrometer was reading a certain um values but it it had a filter in front of it so um it was blocking off some of the radiation specifically from the laser mm-hmm. right so we blocked off any back reflections from the laser and so that it would only be everything but the laser and we we ended up taking a sheet of paper and printing it off uh on our on a high resolution printer high color printer and we set that kind of next to the black body mm-hmm. and we would sit there and be like huh that looks uh, pretty blue there so let's go ahead and set a reference point of blue on the spectrometer reading yeah we're sitting there and these things are warming up to you know basically 4000 Kelvin, 3000 Kelvin. <laughs> we got this big black body that's warming that <laughs> hot. And we're just sitting there and we're just have like this piece of paper we're like, "Oh, that's our reference." And I think it's still used to this day by the the customer I was building the references for. He can use it for laser cladding and know what temperature the part is when he's looking at it. Oh and that's God. that's how you use black body radiation. So you can use the radiation to understand how hot something is during mm-hmm. processing without actually measuring it. The spectrometer sounds like it would have been handy. I remember there was a guy that was driving down uh, my block once upon a time when I was a kid and the muffler fell off his car. And so he walked yeah. down this, like, you know, the, I don't know, I don't know, 20 feet back to his muffler and picked it up. And of course, burned the bejesus out of his hands. <laughs> he could have used a little yeah. indication that maybe it was at 4,000 Calvin and he should not touch that right now. <laughs> Yeah, some sort of measurement device that measures the color of uh, that's being emitted would be would have been useful. So that would be like a uh, that you know I don't know if you see those handheld ones they use for like pipes and stuff. Those I've are typically you know to see how hot pipes are. I've seen laser those pointer are, thermometers. Yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah, those, those those use the same principle of black body radiation. Also, oh yeah, they measure temperature of things by measuring what what the spectrum coming off of it is. Really? So they measure the, the light spectrum coming off of something and that tells them the, the yeah. temperature instead of... Oh, that's such a fascinating way to do it. And is it Does it take less energy to do that than it would... Or it take... Yeah, you can measure basically the IR that's coming off of it and it's just a... It's, the detector is very simple. Mm-hmm. That's what the, that's the big difference between like using... The detector is very, very simple and they can do that kind of stuff with it. I haven't taken one of those apart. <laughs> but I, I know how we measure color, mm-hmm. and I know that the principle is the same. So when we measure color, we simply just put some filters in front of uh, in front of a camera that kind of we know what the filters are, mm-hmm. and then we know what the radiation through is, and then we use um, the tri-stimulus curve, if you're really interested, uh, to calculate back what color that is. And I'm a bit of a color science in my my uh, my job. I'm the uh, <laughs> expert, I'll say. But uh, it, it's a whole discipline in itself, color science. You want to make sure your products look the same on the shelf and stuff like that. There's a whole discipline to people and the colors that are used and all that stuff to make, make people buy, actually. Back to capitalism. Mm. <laughs> I've become very tri-stimulated by that. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, like, like I said in the, in the episode, uh, the high school science behind um, 
wearing black clothes or wearing a white shirt was that black colors absorb heat and therefore if you were to wear a black shirt in the sun it would keep heat uh, absorbed against your body you would be hotter in a black shirt whereas if you were in a white shirt it would reflect more of the heat and therefore in the sun uh, a white shirt would be a cooler thing to wear that was like high school science like not high school science like schoolyard like what you learn on the on the monkey bars <laughs> so it may not be real real but it's uh it seemed to, to um stand up to the our observations nonetheless would, would, would you as somebody in in a humid texas airport uh find yourself cooler because you were wearing a ball black absolutely not <laughs> okay uh, he's, uh, I think it's just uh, maybe, you know, just a little bit like, hey, let me catch a key phrase from from science and just apply it here. Right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, authors do that elsewhere, too. It's it's pretty funny, you know, and other podcasts do it and stuff. So they just take like they take like the key words and and just oh, let me apply that word there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you also find like people that when you're interviewing them for like openings in your company, when they drop keywords and don't really know what they mean, you're kind of like, what the heck's wrong with this guy? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they like the buzzwords, right? So maybe Crichton just dropped a buzzword there. So mm-hmm. who knows? And I've been in some work meetings where it just literally, there is one buzzword and then the next person just nods and says the second buzzword. There's no sentence, no context. They're just agreeing over like, they don't even know what they're saying. <laughs> So I've seen these meetings, they're terrifying. And you just shrug and try not to say something really, really belligerent afterwards. <laughs> I have trouble biting my tongue. I've been a long, hard life of just bite your tongue, man, and you know, everything will be better. The whole world's better if you just shut up. And I don't do it. And uh, <laughs> that's been my lesson across the bear, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> So we've been able to dispel this idea that um, Malcolm was effectively employing uh, the, the process of black body radiation. But he does say that wearing all black or just dark gray does match. And I think that's true. You can wear all. It, it's a good look. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, what? I like uh, I run into mathematicians sometimes, you know, they end up being in the fields that I'm, I work in. And uh, I guess all black would be very characteristic of mathematicians. I mm-hmm. mean, they're just kind of unique people in themselves. I mean, even being a physics grad, I'm, I'm already a little bit quirky, but math just takes it to the next, uh, the next level, right? So. <laughs> Whereas pure <laughs> theory, like it, things don't even matter once you get into math. It's uh... yeah, yeah. So, and it, yeah. I've run into a couple, and they're, they're nice people. They're just they're very quirky, yeah. quirky people. So it, it does make sense that he's just like, hey, I don't want to think about what I wear, uh, so I just grab the same stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think Malcolm instead is is more employing this idea of like culture jamming. Like he's trying to do something provocative or or counterintuitive for the purposes of not fitting into the the routine of your everyday life. He seems to be resisting this pre-programmed destiny that people kind of fall find themselves falling into their routines and stuff like that. It seems like he's trying to be provocative. I don't, he's never mean, I don't think, and he's never really condescending. I mean, there are moments where he's argumentative and there's there's times where he's pejorative against Hammond and things like that but he's he's never condescending all of his explanations aren't like um mansplaining or anything like that he seems to be very clear-spoken and uh encouraging he's lifting people up as opposed to just uh condescending to them I think yeah in my you know, interpretation. even on heroin right, or whatever it's like. <laughs> yeah, the morphine the morphine the morphine <laughs> even on the morphine he was like yeah very but he was kind of like I told him so like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and he was a bit proud of that, I almost feel like. 
He and would. His, his commentary, his commentary about people that actually execute things. It was like, um, forget what kind of intelligence he called them. He, thin intelligence. Like, thin intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So he called them thin intelligence. Basically, they just do stuff because they they can. They don't really think about why, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, or if it's right. And uh, I mean, that's that's seen quite a bit in in fields that I I work in. Is that a lot of people just do something or file patents or not really with the expectation of actually making anything from that patent, but just because they can. Mm-hmm. And also just try something just because they can, even though it's not the best thought process. Mm-hmm. So you do you do see some people just try that, especially in like what what is called like more of the um, forward thinking groups. They just try things mm-hmm. and if they stick. I've been in groups like that before and it's kind of fun. You know, you just do stuff just because you, you can, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I think it comes with a there's a there's a very narrow band perspective. I think with the the concept of thin intelligence that you become so specialized and efficient and um, successful at such a very unique process or or outcome that you've lost focus on why are you even doing this? Like, to to who's good are you are you achieving these you know this um you know Olympic level of of quality. <laughs> You know, so what? You can do this now. You're, you're just how many? You've okay. Guinness World Record book, for example. You've uh, you put more ping pong balls in your mouth than anybody in the world. But did you think about why? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's type of stuff. And yeah, that and that happens. Yeah, and there's a lot of people like that. They just don't really think about in in the field of optics. Mm-hmm. They just they're very focused. I mean, I I'm probably thin intelligence, right? I have a very specialized field. I understand optics. Sometimes uh, I have a hard time with conveying what I need to electronics or mechanics, but maybe I have the intelligence. Maybe maybe his critique was of somebody like myself, which is which is fine. Well, I think that there's a, a component of the American dream that's related to that concept of jack of all trades is the master of none. That if you want to succeed, you need to find your niche, be the best at it, and therefore uh, prosperity will 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 come upon you. For, for for becoming excellent and, and unique in your own way. And so I feel like there's that element of it, that you're doing it for, for uh, as we were saying, with, with capitalist purposes. And I think the examples that are put in Jurassic Park are people are employing these biotechnologies whimsically and in secret, and they're doing it in a rush so they can make as much money as they can before the next person can do it. And so that's, I think, the, the Jurassic Park perspective on thin intelligence. And I think we can all, I guess, learn a lesson about, about that. But I think it's epitomized in that extraordinary line from from the film. Uh, you spend so much, time, so much time wondering whether or not you could. You never stop to think about whether or not you should. And that, and everybody loves that line because it it's so it strikes you right to the core. It, it, that touches every person. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder what the intelligence uh, Malcolm actually has, right? Because he's a mathematician. It's not like he's solving every problem. I guess he feels like chaos theory is so broad that it's. Not the intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. He does come with a sort of existentialism. Uh, he's got a bit of Nietzsche in him in that, you know, almost all efforts are fruitless. Like, to what end are we doing anything? Uh, the world and the universe are so broad and, and wonderful that um, we are just these specks in our... We don't make a difference. You know, there's no irreplaceable man sort of thing. And, like, we don't ever hear about what he's ever accomplished or what um, successes that he has had in his career other than... He doesn't believe in Jurassic Park. That's literally <laughs> the, the, the sum output of his uh, famous career that he's uh, 
<laughs> dug out for himself. So, yeah, it's a good yeah. point. Like, what's the when my when, when Malcolm's not at Jurassic Park? What is he doing? <laughs> yeah. He's doing some sort of chaos theory, right? And in a lot of ways, it's you know, as someone, I in a lot of ways, I predict the unpredictable, right? So, uh, I predict how light's going to behave through a system that has scattering elements and things like that. And, Basically, I brute force it, right? In my world, I brute force it. I send millions or if not billions of um, theoretical rays through the system and take the average resultant uh, from that. And then and from that average resultant, I, I can kind of get a picture of what uh, taillight's going to look like or what a heads-up display is going to look like to the driver. And I can predict that type of stuff using what's called Monte Carlo simulation. And... What I don't get is he never really goes into the chaos theory that proves that the park is going to be bad. He never goes into his assumptions because, let's be honest, you have to even still somehow narrow down your assumptions. Even if you say it's wrong, you have to present your assumptions of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And his assumptions are basically, it's going to (laughs) fail. That's it, right? So, very interesting. And he mentioned some things in the book that are now, now you can simulate. He mentioned, like turbulence and and things that you see that you can't simulate and you can simulate that type of stuff nowadays um and you can predict with a certainty of what it's going to behave like especially like airplanes and 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 optics for instance and how it's going to behave and computer power has really uh kind of taken the chaos theory and, and kind of applied it because he he believes that there is like a underlying mathematical to the world and and yeah there is right so mm. especially like my field using monte carlo it's uh <laughs> we we uh we we do we do simulate the world that is on uh if you only ran it once the simulation you would you would get a really weird result right so you run it millions of times when, when Crichton wrote the introduction on how biotechnology was changing the world but those who were changing the world with biotech were doing it in secret and in haste with trivial pursuits, all for the singular purposes of great profits, that that was a recipe for disaster. He was kind of saying, this isn't going to work. You know, that was him kind of building a world uh, that he puts in place to serve as the architecture upon which Jurassic Park could be a real place. Because in in reality, Jurassic Park doesn't stand up. Like, it just wouldn't (laughs) happen, right? But almost 30 years later, how does that, from your perspective on, on... on technology in in, in uh, mm-hmm. as a career and things like that do you see that this continues to be a thing or is there more regulation that keeps people like slows people down or do you find a lot of red tape in your work or how does it how does it go yeah i mean my job is only red tape so, <laughs> uh, right so it's uh you know essentially i have to make sure that the the, the things i design meet federal regulations or customer regulations mm-hmm. um but I, I, I think that my my red, red tape is basically for safety of the optical to make sure it's performing to what the expectations are. And so that, you know, when you look at one taillight versus another taillight, for instance, and I've designed taillights, uh, you can um, you can kind of know that the person is is stopping, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can know when he's turning. And those regulations are there. I don't think that it, it hinders uh, innovation so much. Mm-hmm. But there definitely is like a regulations will hinder innovation. Let me, let me take an example. I wasn't, you know, if you look at headlights, and just recently this changed, but um, I don't know if you've heard of adaptive headlights that actually like turn on and off parts of the, the light so that when you're driving, you don't blind the person across for you, but you can still have your high beams on. Okay. Uh, to look at the road ahead. I haven't heard of um, that, but I love the sound of it. 
Yeah, that that was hindered in the United States until recently. I think it was February that that was actually uh, changed. The the regulation was changed so that that was legal. It's been going on in Europe for quite a time, quite some time. And we we knew in the industry that it, eventually the regulation would get changed. But you know, it's it's a slow process, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's uh takes a while. So you will find that new cars will be coming out with that type of um, technology in North America mm-hmm. soon. And Canada, and Canada follows uh, most of what we do in the United States. They have like one exception, which is like they have to have daytime runner lights. And then uh, Americans kind of picked up on that. that now it's kind of a, a jewel of the car. Makes it look pretty, right? <laughs> oh. So that's, uh, it's, in, it's almost on every car now. But yeah, adaptive headlights is a good example of regulation kind of slowing down innovation. But I'm not sure. I mean, I think with the FDA, uh, it does slow down a lot of innovation because it just takes so long to bring stuff to reality, especially because you have to prove it safe, right? Mm-hmm. So did you find that there was a, a particularly strong anti-capitalist message in, in the book? Did you feel like Crichton really felt as though regulations were too loose, that the people were too free to, to, uh, to do harm? Did you feel? Yeah, I think it was, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like uh, the anti-capitalist feel was there in mm-hmm. this in this, uh, in this book. Uh, maybe maybe not so much anti-capitalist as, you know, you need to caution capitalism and make sure that it's well-regulated. A, rel- a well-regulated capitalist system is, is essentially what we kind of have nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an unregulated one is, 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 there's a lot of dangerous things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for instance, you know, OSHA is there just to protect employees. Before OSHA, you know, there wasn't uh, wasn't anyone around. But to be fair, like on the regulation side, usually regulations don't come until after something's happened. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like they can predict that a dinosaur park's going to come up <laughs> and then mm-hmm. regulate it beforehand. So I'm sure plenty of regulation happened after this uh, disaster. But I haven't got into the second book, Lost World, but I'm sure uh, after Lost World. Uh, the Costa Rican uh, government was uh, very much uh, saying, "Hey, we should stop this." <laughs> so, I'm trying to recall uh, how they're how reactionary they are. It's not a big selling feature of the book, but uh, they are active in making sure dinosaurs aren't something you can find. <laughs> I mean, but he he made it a point to blame the venture capitalist also in this, right? Mm-hmm. He even said, "This is your fault. You need to fix it." Mm-hmm. Uh, to the to the lawyer, right? So, he he made some points that, hey, you know, you can't just say that you're operating under capitalism and and disregard all the ill effects of it. I mean, it could be comments about global warming, even you know, in in the end. Yep. Is that we can't we can't uh, we can't just have unhindered capitalism. Personally, I feel capitalism has been the best uh, to drive individual incentives and things like that, but it needs to have some collectivism uh, involved in terms of it needs to be some some oversight and general interest of the many over individuals, right? So, mm-hmm. so would you have considered Jurassic Park a piece of socialist literature? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, 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 don't, I don't think so because it's, uh, you know, they still, I don't think so. I don't think it's a socialist literature. Okay. I, think it's, I don't think it's that. Okay. Well, I just thought it was this warning against unbridled capitalism. Yeah, just unbridled is a good word, you know. 
Yeah, you, you have the words for this. Yeah, unbridled okay. is a good word. Right. So that's a great word to describe this. Like basically you need to rein this in a little bit in in order to protect people. So. <laughs> All right, you wanted to talk a bit about chaos theory. So let me see what I can do here to, uh, to get us rolling. Uh, one of the storytelling... Uh, contraptions that Crichton uses for, for Malcolm to interpret data is to see data plotted out in graphs. And then by virtue of seeing the shapes of these graphs, he can interpret the number of factors required to produce the results. And this doesn't feel crazy. So if I think back to my high school days of plotting out quadratic equations, you know, you plot out x and that makes a straight line. You plot out x squared and you get the parabola, you get the u shape. And x cubed and you get two, what are they called? Inflection points. Right. And then as you get, you know, X to the exponent four, you get three inflection points and so on. So when you see the shape of a graph, you can actually kind of visualize what type of formula you're seeing. That's not crazy, right? No, and actually Excel does that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Excel adds trend lines and you can do trend lines. And sometimes when I'm looking at data, I, uh, I actually add trend lines, different trend lines to try to get a formulation of it. Mm -hmm. I do that quite often actually to try to simplify the equations. So they're not these these massive equations, uh, especially if you're dealing with something like polarization, which is dealing with cosine squared type of uh, equations and mm -hmm. compilation time to do these type of things. If you can make it a simple, you know, x equals y, uh, you know, a a y plus b, uh, life's a little bit easier, right? Okay. So so that's like an example of like rounding a number up to the nearest ten in formula terms. You just simplify yeah. it a bit. And then if you have it's to get you know, specific, you can go back and do that later. Yeah, you can, well, and you can also reduce the computation time to do calculations. Oh, sure. sure. Or the requirements of systems, right? So, uh, especially in manufacturing in the capitalist world that we live in, I need to produce as many as possible as quickly, right? So mm -hmm. it's possible. So I came up with so. three examples from the text that show where they look at a graph in, and instead of like actually looking at the figures and that graph immediately tells them what they need to know uh, without actually looking at the numbers. And so the first one is a temperature spike in the freezer when Nedry steals the embryos. Dr. Wu looks at a chart of the embryo storage monitor, sees a temperature spike on the chart, which would be a sign that the door had been open and someone had been in the freezer. Um, meaning I guess like some, some coolant had escaped and the temperature rises a little. So here we have a spike in the graph and that change uh, changes the expected data uh, and the shape of the data. And so we can immediately see that something is incorrect just by looking at the chart. So I thought that was a pretty good example of how you don't need to really know what all the numbers are. Just when you see a graph, uh, you can see, ah, yes, there's a problem here. So that was yeah. pretty good. The second we get is the, the Procomps Ignathus growth chart or the height chart. So when Dr. Wu shows uh, the Procomps Ignathus height chart to, to Malcolm, he says, look at this. And we're told that there is a Poisson distribution for the animal population. Okay which is like a regular looking bell curve, which is high at the top and then symmetrically tapers on either side. Uh, to Malcolm, who has learned that the copies were bred in three batches, seeing this normative distribution curve means that Jurassic Park's controls aren't measuring all the correct data. Malcolm can see by the shape of the graph that there are unknown variables affecting the copies height distribution results. Uh, and this is because the population created in three distinct tiers shouldn't appear normal because it wasn't created normally. Uh, first of all, Benjamin X. Lewis, <laughs> What's that Poisson distribution usually used for? So uh, I'm not the expert in this, but I typic they typically are using this for Six Sigma uh, manufacturing uh, okay. in my field. So they're basically making sure that uh, any of your tolerance stack up or anything to that nature 
isn't uh, past that curve uh, and, and you're getting the 99.9 percentile. Mm -hmm. I am not an expert in that. And so some of your, your uh, people that listen might actually correct me on that. But uh, essentially, they have a tolerance stack up and uh, they look at the, the Six Sigma uh, and they make sure that while manufacturing, they only have so many errors and then it falls within a certain margin. That's typically what my field will use it for. Mm -hmm. um, it is uh, telling that he he uh, he was able to see, you know, just from that data, I remember that he was like, oh, why is the standard deviation? Is it a croissant, all right? And why is it basically a bell curve? Why isn't three distinct bell curves yeah. that you can see? And yeah, that was, and I think he, he realized that basically it's not calculating correctly. And that's when he, he wondered why uh, it wasn't the computer model or something like that. You could look at the data and see the computer model that uh, wasn't capturing everything it was supposed to, right? So, mm -hmm. Yes, and yeah. so that was evidence that they were breeding in the because it's a natural population, and and uh, yeah, and yeah. so that was the idea that so they... yeah they ended up yeah they ended up morphing together and doing that. I don't typically use that in my. I'll enter in that data that I get from a supplier into the distribution. From what I could tell, it sounded like the Poisson curve was used when you were looking to measure probabilities or you're looking at the rate of change or the standard deviations between results, that you wouldn't necessarily do that if you're just plotting out a graph. You wouldn't call a chart that shows you kind of one variable uh, plotted out. That wouldn't really be something you would use as a like a distribution curve for, but um, it just seemed like an odd, like a physics term that he threw in that, but it didn't really show a, a, a function of what physics is used for. You know no, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. He probably, he probably did that type of stuff. I mean, he did it throughout the book, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, well, I'll just let this go. <laughs> like, yeah. Where, where my reading through the book, I'm like, whatever, I'm, I'm having fun. I don't want to get yeah. too like angry at him. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. No, and I don't want to get angry at him either, but sometimes it just yeah. comes up, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the last chart I had here was the public services, the public health services in San Jose had an infant mortality rate in the towns of the west coast of Costa Rica uh, from earlier in the year 1989. Gennaro presents this uh, to his group of consultants. Uh, it shows that infant mortality rates are spiking and then falling in a trend that's increasing and the graph shows that there are periods where the rates sharply decline, but then spike, and then decline, and then spike even higher. And to them, the shape of this graph, to Malcolm anyhow, is a series of undulating peaks and falls, which as an aggregate, sorry, is growing. And upon glancing at this, Malcolm conclusively states that escaped dinosaurs are not causing the spikes in infant mortality rates. Uh, the shape of this graph indicates that the variables affecting the results are too numerous to be explained by a singular variable, as in escaped dinosaurs. Even if that variable is escaped dinosaurs, uh, which we, we kind of know is to be true, uh, by the end of the novel, we're told that the lizard bites have stopped. We're told, thankfully, the lizard bites have stopped. But we get no word on whether or not the infant mortality rates have returned to normal or not. So Michael Crichton may have unleashed some other horrible infanticidal maniac upon Costa Rica that just wasn't the subject of this novel. But we have now a body of three examples where we have the shape of data being informative, not by what the actual figures are, but just how the, the plots, uh, the graphs plot uh, is, is meaningful to us. So I think that was pretty neat. And we have chapters called the shape of the data and things like that. So this is a good way for us to kind of skip past the math part and just get right to the results part. And I, and I think Crichton was use, you know, appropriately doing that instead of trying to walk us through it. Yeah, you might get bored if you try to do all the math, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be as much fun to read. It's, it's, really, it's really boring stuff. I mean, in the end, it's just having all that information, you know, to yourself and 
and trying to explain it to someone else. It, you know, we as engineers typically want to go right into the math, mm -hmm. which is completely boring, right? So you need people like Crichton to, to basically say, okay, skip the math. This is the basic concept. You can take data and you can do this. I, I have read a book called uh, Structures and Why Things Don't Fall Down, uh, <laughs> which is uh, a great book. It's actually a great book for... I feel it's a great book for even engineers to kind of read, to kind of make fun of ourselves a little bit and how math and tied to math we get. And we lose focus on the basic concepts instead of we are focused on the math. And for someone who doesn't want to focus on the math, it really kind of explains why things don't fall down. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a really, I really like the book a lot. So it's a, it was a really good, I mean, if you're looking for books to do your next podcast on, that sounds like a great one. But I know you're a bit more of a dinosaur guy, so... Well, I would like to employ more not falling down in my life as well. So uh, that would yeah. be <laughs> maybe I will read that book. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good book. I I I've, I enjoyed it. So <laughs> I, I I read a lot of different books. I try to switch between uh, fiction and nonfiction lately. Cool. Um, going between things to try to expand my horizons from being just this engineer slash physicist and really kind of understand other people's value because as engineers we typically think we're the only people important fictions and things like that have really uh kind of balanced out my life and, and, and made me respect a lot of more disciplines right so sure um, i believe you i believe you i should do more math for the very same reason <laughs> no, don't do more math. you don't i don't need that i don't need to be well-rounded with more math so yeah, I, don't, I guess, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at math, like the way you just looked at it, that was quite fun, right? Mm -hmm. The way you looked at the curves and you, you found those three examples in the book, that's that's kind of fun math. Or mm -hmm. if you, you can make math kind of do fun things, but don't get into the math of like why, you know, and, and looking at the, the math of thing. It's not it's not as fun as as I think. It's not it's not for everyone. Let me put it that well, way. Well, speaking of not as much fun math, so... We've looked at a couple of graphs and charts here and data that have been plotted out. And the image that we get after those those plot points, I guess, have been put into it. One of the shapes that we have not talked about yet that's in the book, the fractal curve, Ben. Oh, no, the fractal curve is in, is in chaos theory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's a, yeah, that's a really weird curve. When, when Malcolm plots out his data and the results that he gets isn't... Um, a parabola and it's not a straight line and it's not a you know these different you know oscillating systems or curves uh, he instead gets a fractal what does this shape mean um, when you when you go to look at the shape of the data and discover uh oh we have a fractal instead I don't typically deal with fractals <laughs> thank goodness right <laughs> I, think, I think that's actually more of an economics problem right okay. economics is like kind of this math that's off into this like a lot of theoretical you don't really know how to look at the data there's so many variables involved in economics. Uh, when I'm doing my math, it's a lot more simplistic in terms of like we don't we know our variables, we know our assumptions, and uh, we we know these assumptions and variables for many years of messing up previously or whatever. Mm -hmm. right? We make we change our assumptions to account for that. And uh, I don't know this uh, these curves like this must be something like people trying to analyze a political or a uh, a policy and they're like whoa what's happening here and there's so many factors and you have no idea what's happening mm -hmm. so i feel like that type of math and maybe chaos theory in general is really quite applied to economics much more than it is to optics mm -hmm. optics is optics is kind of a discipline that's 
you know, been around for a long time. We've been looking at things as humans for a long, long time. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've been using optics a very long time. And so I feel like our, in my field, we don't see as much of that. But uh, chaos theory really applies well to economics, I feel, and economic structures and policies and how they affect things, everything to that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he mentions that they were using it to predict uh, weather, rioting, and something like seizures or something like that. Those are the three <laughs> the three things that they were looking at. First off, I guess yeah. we should give Michael credit, uh, Crichton some credit that he says that in his acknowledgments that he refer he he had um, the real life American physicist Heinz Pagels uh, provoke Dr. Ian Malcolm. Is Heinz Pagels a name that comes up when one earns a degree in physics? No. No. Pagels? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Well, I'm sure it would be German. I, I only have a, a bachelor's, right? Maybe if I got into a specific field, maybe he would have came up. But in the bachelor's field, you kind of just learn uh, the guys who have been dead for a century or two. Mm-hmm. You know, like Maxwell's equations and, and um, you know, you, you use a lot of quantum mechanics and stuff like that. So I don't I don't know this individual that well. Well, in some but ways, he, Crichton did Pagels kind of a disservice by making Ian Malcolm like an arrogant rogue with the deplorable yeah. qualities like excessive per- personality because it sounds like Pagels was like a physics hero and one of his greatest gifts above being a genius-level physicist was uh, his ability to explain complex topics in easy-to-understand terms, avoiding both oversimplification and needless technicalities, according to Wikipedia. And um, <laughs> and this is the best quality Crichton breathes into Malcolm, and so I, I have to believe that he's lifted very heavily from Pagels' writing on chaos theory to illustrate the subject uh, for the average genre fiction reader. So when we're hearing about pool balls bouncing around the, the, t- the billiards table and things like that, I think that these must be uh, analogies uh, that he was probably lifting right off of, of Pagels, but um, chaos theory otherwise is, I think the word is impenetrable. <laughs> uh, so I looked at, there are three qualities uh, the, the, uh, of something that is a distinctly di- uh, chaotic system. And for it to be a chaotic system, it needs to be one, uh, that, that the dynamic system is sensitive to initial conditions. And I think this is uh, the, the premise upon which that he builds most of chaos theory in this. We get the, the initial conditions and the too many variables as, um, as being very important uh, this whole time. That there is incalculably chaotic. You, you can't, there's too much involved to, to know how will, uh, the results will turn out. How do you understand chaos? I disagree with that in terms of like what I was discussing earlier. I think that with computing power and, and, and probability establishments of certain things, we can now predict the unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, predict. And I think, for instance, billiard tables moving around. The, the, I, I guarantee there's a simulator out there that can simulate <laughs> billiard correctly. I mean, it's the fact that you can play a video game that does billiard tables relatively accurately yeah. um, is, is kind of credited that, that we can uh, – do a lot of this stuff. I mean, it has been 30 years and computer power has really taken off in these last 30 years. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I hardly, and, and when we mentioned math, I hardly do any real math anymore. I just tell my computer to do all the math uh, for the, for the most part. Right. So I kind of, you know, I think that the initial, you know, maybe there's still a lot of things, like I mentioned the economy uh, that really can't be predicted that well or controlled or understood uh, on, on a level, but Turbulence on a jet, billiards on a pool pool table. I feel can be mm-hmm. right nowadays. So, from your understanding, you know, from the physics end of things, how does like what more to chaos theory that, than what we're given in the book? Are you familiar with? 
Yeah, and once again, I didn't really study chaos theory. <laughs> I, don't, because I can't believe that. <laughs> really? It's relatively new, new. In terms of new, I mean, it's, it's kind of new when it came out, right? When the book came out, it's relatively new then, right? So it's, uh, it's not this, uh, the, the theories of this and the butterfly flapping its wings in one location causing a big uh, problem someplace else. You know, this this is kind of a newer thought process, and I don't really, I didn't really study it in university. But you know, we can we can take quantum mechanics, and and basically apply it with chaos theory. I feel in terms of like a lot of probabilities, and you just keep adding on all these probabilities on top of each other, that a result will end up being something completely look kind of random, but in the end, it's a bunch of things put together that end up giving you that result. Mm-hmm where I think using Monte Carlo simulations, like I said, you can really kind of hone in chaos theory and, and actually control it as long as you know your assumptions. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. He he, uh, he never mentions his assumptions, I feel, in the book. Like, hey, these dinosaurs, like he doesn't know much about dinosaurs, right? right? He doesn't know how they behave. He just says, yeah, they're dangerous, right? So they're going to kill everyone, right? I know that um, there's one part where I was laughing about how it seems like uh, one of the one of these properties of, of a chaotic system is that um, it has dense periodic orbits. And when I went to look at that, they didn't even use words to describe what this means. It was literally just the square root of of um, Greek letters, <laughs> followed by like symbols that don't like we're literally from an alien universe. I had no idea what I was looking at. Dense periodic orbits don't make a lick of sense. Strange attractors I can't make any sense of. They don't even use English <laughs> to, to say no, they what these don't. things they mean. Mathematics and, they, and then a lot of times mathematics feel like it's such a, a kind of language that people would understand. And, you know, other people would understand. You have no idea what they're talking about unless you're a specialist in that mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. Or, or really intelligent, which, you know, I like to think of myself as relatively intelligent, but I'm not one of those uh, uh, really, really, really intelligent people who can just look at this math and understand it. It would take me quite a long time to understand it. And you did mention that, you know, breaking down these complex things into simple terms is like a real, is a real valuable thing to be able to do. And mm-hmm. that's the real scientists that make impact on the world. Like, for instance, Einstein, right? Mm-hmm. He was able to really break stuff down pretty simply for people to understand, even though it's very, very complex, like special relativity mm-hmm. and um, E equals MC squared type of stuff. So he... He broke it down into a lot more simple terms, right, for everyone to understand. I feel like Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, I think that's the name of the book, was like super accessible. It wasn't even a very long book. Like, I remember that being very, very, very easy to read. Like, anybody could have picked that up and been like, no problem. Yeah, and I think they, you know, those are the the real scientists that really make it so that it's kind of for the common man, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, Stephen Stephen like, Hawking got famous. <laughs> and and Neil deGrasse Tyson is probably the modern one that's doing that a lot, mm-hmm. right? So he seems to be doing it. Although I feel like he just really likes to hear himself talk, but um, he seems to be the the modern physicist that is kind of like what what a Malcolm would be in the real world, right? Where he tries to explain things. Why would they? Why would the Jurassic Park pick like this this like popular mathematician? It always loves to talk. Mm-hmm. It sounded like it's chaos so theory was a new fad, and that Hammond was um, 
I guess, attracted to that. Like, he wanted to be trendy. And so he asked for Malcolm's opinion. And then when his opinion came back, oh, yeah, don't do this. This is um, this is a cat- catastrophe waiting to happen. Uh, that he said, whoa, well, I guess I don't, I guess we don't want to listen to that. It bears the question, why on earth did they invite Malcolm if they already had his opinion uh, written? Uh, why was and, he even there? But, I mean, he he was very interesting. Like, he was wonderful as a character. His his yeah. uh, diatribes were, were terrific, and they were... They, they really contextualized what was going on. I thought that he was... He is a great character, and so I'm not sad that he was there. It, why he's there doesn't make a, a tremendous amount of difference. <laughs> but that was fine. Yeah, I guess why he's there it doesn't really matter. You have to try to get him there, and they just said, hey, yeah. We bring him here, right? So, so one of the things that um, uh, John Arnold says about why they disregarded the Malcolm's Chaos Theory report was that uh, Chaos Theory is just a theory. It's a model about real things, but it's still just modeling. It's not actual. It's not real. It's not. It's not literally practical. And so he had described as he had worked on, like I think, missile systems in his uh, oh, yeah. previous career. He mentioned something about resonant yaw that there was um, a wiggle. The real things do, and that means that it's a, a real thing in the real world, behaving, reacting to actual real life stuff. And so you would expect there to be variability in in the trajectory of something. It means that it's not being done in in a test. It's not being done in a vacuum. It's being performed in real life. And so we expect there to be unpredictability. And so you, the lesson is, be prepared to be adaptable. That is the whole the whole point. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, risk management and stuff like that today is not to, you're never going to prevent every, you're not going to think of or prevent everything. You need to be adaptable and you need to think on your feet. You need to have systems in place that you can, you can make new decisions as a reaction uh, as opposed to being preventative necessarily. And so I think John Arnold had this interesting perspective that this resonant yaw was, was something that he said was a good thing. You needed to have these reactions because that shows that it's, it's, um, I don't know. Nonetheless, he, he did say, well, we just, just disregarded his report. We disagreed with it. We disregarded it. Yeah, yeah exactly. We disagreed with it. <laughs> yeah. It, it basically said, Hey, yeah, there is going to be problems, but we'll face them as we come. Right. So yeah, it's kind of a shoot by your hip type of, uh, approach toward the problems. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shoot from the hip, shoot from the hip, not shoot by the hip. And I think, it's kind of weird that, you know, typically theory is like this, like people typically apply like theory as if it's not fact. And in science, theory kind of is fact, right? You have like the theory <laughs> of evolution, you have like the, the heat transfers. I mean, you do get into some laws of like thermodynamics that are laws that are, you know, but you're, usually theories are basically not proven wrong hypothesis, right? So, right. <laughs> yeah, so they're kind of hey, we haven't proved this wrong yet, but it seems like it could definitely be right. We still can't prove it right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's right. You can you can um, extrapolate and you know plan upon these theories and uh, you're likely going to be fine, believing that these are the truth. And also, one thing I did enjoy as, an, as a kind of an underling, like uh, as somebody who's not in management, uh, in terms of like Hammond at the end was like, uh, was like thinking about all the wrong people in the wrong places. And yeah. this, if I retry it, I can do it better next time. And then he meets his demise and then just kind of, that made me feel good. As, uh, <laughs> as <many speak. laughs> that was my management. Like, all right, yeah, you can just replace me, huh? And then and then you fall down. Right? Yeah. So. It was like uh, at the end of Alien, instead of like uh, killing the alien in a vat of 
plasma or whatever, sticking three more eggs down your throat and saying, oh, I'm just going to make a bunch more later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty nice. Uh, it was like a nice little the person who was in charge of it all that blames everyone for it and ends up yeah. meeting his demise. Mm. There's some poetic was, justice to it that the uh, yeah. that the architect of all of this villainy got his uh, comeuppance. I think there, there's something nice about that. And they had a chance to make him like, boy, I I see the error of my ways now, but they didn't. They said, nope, I'm gonna go bigger, I'm gonna go longer, I'm gonna go harder. <laughs> exactly and then yeah i thought that was awesome i thought that was you know i kind of expected him to be like in the movie where he kind of like oh i made a mistake i agree with you that the park shouldn't be open but Mm -hmm. basically it was a little bit of the opposite like huh everyone else around me messed up i need to go bigger better and faster right so Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, the movie is a little different he's like I'm going to make this great park. And then they're like, I don't think you should. Then he watches a Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor kill a bunch of people. And he goes, but I see your point of view. And they hop on a Jeep and they get out. <laughs> and that was about it. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time here. Let me know. Has, was it worthwhile reading the book? Did you have fun doing it? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, like I said, I, I'm not really a big, dumb dinosaur fan. And, and really, the book isn't necessarily about dinosaurs. No? You know, I'm more of a... Big dumb Ryan Rogers fan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got the podcast for you then. (laughs) Really, and the podcast has been great. Uh, It's been really um, nice. And I do enjoy the the reading, uh, how you critique the the literature in in a very detailed way. I uh, I enjoy those sections. Mm -hmm. And your guests have been very intelligent people that are very influential in their fields, which has been quite interesting. In terms of like how much draw you, how many how many doctorates that have written several books and articles you get on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So about dinosaurs, right? So well, it's been handy because the last time I was influential in a field, I was out in a field and I said, "Hey, let's get out of this field," and people did. That was it. <laughs> so <laughs> and uh, but it's been a lot of fun doing this uh, podcast. And you often ask your guest, "Would you do it again?" Absolutely. I'll do it again, and if it's this book or another book, I'll I'll be on I'll be on it again for you. But you're doing great. This is is podcast. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks for being on here. I will find another subject that you will be fascinated to talk about, and uh, we'll get you back on here for sure. All right, thank you very very much to my good pal Ben Lewis for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. Uh, this week's text is control. One of the first chapters named Control, spanning from pages 111 to 120. As a synopsis, Malcolm questions Wu on one of Gennaro's big questions, whether the Procomsignathus remains Grant and Elliot identified as is an escaped animal from Jurassic Park or not. Malcolm is told that the compies were released in a series of batches, and that they are dependent upon lysine, which is provided to them by Jurassic Park in tablet form, without which the animals will fall into a coma and die within 12 hours. The control room is busy helping that boat dock, so while the tour waits, they go visit the Velociraptor holding pen, where the raptors attack the fence, further intriguing Malcolm's suspicions. Characters. Ian Malcolm, he's questioning Wu on his cloning results, including how many different species they've made. Wu's uncertainty with the answer astonishes Malcolm. Malcolm questions Wu on one of Gennaro's big questions, whether the Procomsignathus remains Grantinelli identified is an escaped animal from Jurassic Park or not, and Wu tells him all about them. Malcolm learns that the compies were released in three batches, each six months apart, to reach a target population of 50 animals, and Malcolm says 50 animals is a lot to keep track of. He persists, questioning what would happen if a copy were to escape the island. Upon hearing about the Velociraptors being very smart, Malcolm is 
also becoming very interested in how smart these things are, and I assume that he's questioning their intelligence for the purposes of evaluating their cage-breaking capabilities. Malcolm estimates that the power plant's output far exceeds the needs of, to power a resort. It's enough power to a uh, small city, he believes. And Malcolm also answers the riddle of what the goats are all for. Quote, probably they feed them to the dinosaurs. During the raptor attack, three animals throw themselves against the electric fence as if they didn't see it there, to which Malcolm concludes they aren't, quote, tremendously intelligent in his opinion, and Malcolm confers with Grant over the speed and menace of the Velociraptors on page 118, summarizing, So these Velociraptors look like reptiles, with the skin and general appearance of reptiles, but they move like birds, with the speed and predatory intelligence of birds. Malcolm inquires with Grant on whether Hammond has recreated, quote, persuasive animals on page 119, on whether the raptors' coordinated attacks are behaviorally consistent with the interpretation of the fossil record, and if Grant believes the raptors were intent on killing them given the chance, and Grant agrees on all fronts. Malcolm finds this problematic, as he understands that, quote, large predators such as lions and tigers are not born man-eaters on page 120, which Grant agrees with. These animals must learn somewhere along the way that human beings are easy to kill. Only afterward do they become man-killers. It's Malcolm's theory that the Velociraptors would be even more reluctant than lions and tigers to attack a human being because we are so foreign and unknown to them. So, he wonders, have they learned somewhere along the line that humans are easy to kill? He's fairly sure it's true. In further comments, I shall be extremely interested to see the control room now on page 120. Dr. Henry Wu, Wu isn't exactly sure how many dino, how many different species they've cloned so far on page 111, he tells us. He thinks it's 15 and refers to Ed Regis. He admits that after the first dozen, he quit counting due to the developmental processes, successes, and failures, which ebb and flow, that the exact number of species on the island fluctuates. Wu admits at one point they almost had 20 species of dinosaur. Wu confirms that one species is a Procomsignathus. Intentional or otherwise, Wu believes that the compies are Jurassic animals, which they are not. I think we all, as readers, etc., misinterpret the compies as Compsignathus rather than Procomsignathus because it's continuously described as a compie, sounding way too much like Compsignathus rather than something like saying like Procomp or Proco. Wu reveals that the maintenance folks at the park found dealing with the apatosaur poop problematic as if this were a surprise when they began having the large herbivores. So, they bred compies to manage the problem, and intentionally bred lots of them. In a similar vein, they chose not to breed the largest of sauropods, and Wu, Wu reveals that the control room is designed to track the animals, even though there are a lot of them. Wu is aware of the animals that was found biting a girl in Costa Rica, and cannot explain that phenomenon. But he's certain it's not a Jurassic Park animal. It can't be from their park, because a missing animal would be noticed within a few minutes. And second, the lysine contingency would kill them. Now, later on page 272, Gennaro and Muldoon will enter the park and find a predated juvenile hadrosaur corpse after the stampede. On the sole of its right foot is a tattooed number HD09, which would be the animal's like serial number. The compi would have had one of these two unless it was bred in the wild unbeknownst to the park, which is a possibility, but Wu makes no mention of this, which he probably should have. He should have said, if this were a Jurassic Park's animal, there would be a Jurassic Park serial number on its foot, and then they would look and see whether it was there or not, and then they would know specifically which animal it should have been if it were uh, had a number. He could therefore wash his hands clean of the situation and say, it is not mine, there is no serial number. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gets a bit testy with Malcolm. He's not enjoying being tested on his every decision, although that's exactly what the consultants are here to do, and his duty is to answer every trivial little question to this inspector's satisfaction. So I guess Wu didn't fully understand what was going on here during the safety inspection. 
But he does get testy with him. He goes, look, we're not fools. We understand these are prehistoric animals. They are part of a vanished ecology, a complex web of life that became extinct millions of years ago. They might have no predators in the contemporary world, no checks on their growth. We don't want them to survive in the wild. So I've made them lysine dependent. I inserted a gene that makes a single faulty enzyme in protein metabolism. As a result, the animals cannot manufacture the amino acid lysine. They must ingest it from the outside. Unless they get a rich dietary source of exogenous lysine, Supplied by us in tablet form, they'll go into a coma within 12 hours and expire. It's not expressly noticeable in this chapter, but Dr. Wu is actually a real genius, and Crichton illustrates this by having Wu's vocabulary exceed even what we get from, like, Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm, as I've suggested earlier, does an excellent job relating to the common man, making his language relatable. He isn't in, in an ivory tower, and he doesn't look down on people. He's being persuasive. Uh, Wu, on the other hand, is a genius, and he doesn't care if you understand. We'll see more of this as we go on, but Wu's vocabulary is Crichton's added touch to show us that Wu is a genius, unique among everyone else at the park. Quote, they must ingest it from the outside, he says, unless they get a rich dietary source of exogenous lysine, which they'll go, they'll go into a coma and expire. Spielberg dumbed that down in the movie and just says, quote, unless they're completely supplied with lysine by us, they slip into a coma and die. Wu's vernacular doesn't stoop down. And it's going to get worse during Wu's backstory in the novel, and you'll see. Also, Wu is put up against Regis in a comparative way, sort of, as they both discuss the Velociraptors. While Regis is a spin master, bending the truth or outright lying with a nod and a smile, Wu shows sudden discomfort as questions about the adult raptors begin to get asked. He's nervous about the adult raptors. There's a secret there. And Regis. Regis is more up to date on the park's status and can confirm that there are 15 different species on the island. Leaving Wu behind in the lab, Regis leads the tour back to control where he finds that they're docking the A and B, which causes him to cuss a little bit on page 113. Apparently docking can be very disruptive or difficult, but it's something that causes Regis some anxiety. When Grant asks if there are any adult velociraptors, Crichton notes specifically that Regis says yes without hesitation, as if... There might be a moment for pause there, but Regis is in full spin mode, and the and, you know he's like the park is safe and it's under control. There's nothing to hide, according to his well, according to his continuous lying. Uh, Regis says the raptors won't be integrated into the park quote for a while, cheerfully putting the backhoe incident from January to the back of his mind. He happily takes all who'd like to go to visit the raptor pen on page 115. Ellie Sattler. Ellie pipes in about wanting to know what happens when a dinosaur is bred, uh, but it shows itself to be flawed. And she'd also like to ask questions about the Velociraptor Mongoliensis. And given a chance to see the raptors, Ellie says that she would also like to go do that. Uh, she goes with the group to visit the holding pen. Ellie is the first to identify that the low, humming, gasoline-scented concrete shed is likely housing a generator on page 116, but she's unsure of what the animal enclosure with goats is for. At the raptor pen, Sattler is the first to spot the raptor, and she points it out to Grant. She blurts out that the raptor attack happened fast on 117. When Malcolm asks about coordinated attacks without language, she chimes in, uh, channeling her inner Jane Goodall or Diane Fossey, perhaps an homage to other famous and accomplished female biologists, saying that, oh, language isn't necessary for coordinated hunting. Chimpanzees do it all the time. A group of chimps will stalk a monkey and kill it. All communication is by the eyes. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant questions how Wu may know what the timing of an alien unknown animal's development is, and how he could therefore judge whether it's developing correctly or not, on page 114. Grant would be a good candidate for comparing how an animal develops at Jurassic Park versus the fossil record, after so much time comparing the osteology of Myasaura in his work with hadrosaur nesting colonies, infants, juveniles, and mature adults, mentioned back in episode 8, Shore of the Inland Sea. Upon hearing that there are adult velociraptors in the park, Grant thinks he'd like to take a look at those, and Regis obliges. 
He goes with the group to visit the holding pen on 115, and we're again reminded that Grant likes kids. It was impossible not to like any group of any group so openly enthusiastic about dinosaurs. Grant used to watch kids in museums as they stared open-mouthed at the big skeletons rising above them. Grant makes conversation with Tim, asking about you know what he knows about velociraptors. And Grant elaborates that some dinosaurs may have been quite intelligent as they head to see the velociraptors, and also he makes sure to mention the generator shed that must contain what he considers a, quote, big generator. Grant posits that the immense power being generated may be required for perhaps like the computers. We'll probably learn later that it'll be for the fences, right? We're again led through the novel by sensing what Grant senses rather than being told what he does. He, quote, hears bleeding as he walks forward uh, north a few yards. He shares in Ellie's confusion for what the dozens of goats in the animal enclosure are for. While waiting for the raptors at the pen, Grant hears flies buzzing in the air. Much of our perspective from Grant expresses how he feels the world around him, and perhaps this is tuning into his inner outdoorsman, communing with the wilderness that we're meant to appreciate from a barrel-chested, big-bearded character in a Hawaiian shirt, jeans, and cowboy boots, right? Ellie points the raptor out to Grant, and when he realizes the velociraptor is hunting them, it gives him a chill on 117. His impression is the raptor's are pack hunters for whom ambush is an instinct. Grant feels their speed was astonishing. He barely saw them move. Upon watching the raptors attack, Grant believes that their initial beliefs that dinosaurs were hot-blooded and led at very active lifestyles actually falls short of what he's observed. They're even more incredibly swift than he had imagined. Grant tells Malcolm that these cloned reconstructions are the genuine article. He believes that these are literally cloned dinosaurs, not bioengineered monsters designed to resemble dinosaurs. Alexis, or Lex, Regis asks if she too would like to visit the raptor pen, and she says no, and they opt to play, quote, a little pickle instead, number 15. Tim, he goes with the group to visit the holding pen, and he is considered, quote, the kid tagging along. He gets to chat with Grant about velociraptors. At the raptor pen, Tim has trouble seeing the velociraptors through the ferns, and then <laughs> the group is fascinated with the attack at first, leaning in to see the raptors after they struck the fence, but uh, Tim screams when the third raptor strikes, scaring him. Uh, and, and therefore, Tim swears in this moment. Compies, the idea that the procomsignathuses would be used like jackals to dispose of carcasses is kind of brought up here, but really, they're here to dispose of biological waste, like poop. Uh, Wu says the procomsignathuses are, quote, very distinctive animals, and they made an unusually large number of them to scavenge a dinosaur waste on the island. Pulling copies to perform as pooper scoopers is the idea of creating Jurassic Park as authentic as possible to... A real environment. Wu says that the compies are actual scavengers from the Jurassic period on 112, although we're told by Grant earlier in the novel that the Procompsidnathus is a Triassic animal when they are discussing rediscoveries on page 45 back in episode 9, Skeleton. If it helps, again, the Procompsidnathus is much more like a Coelophysis of the late Triassic rather than a Compsignathus of the late Jurassic. Compsignathids are far more derived than the Coelophysids, but their body shape are similar. And in fact, so similar that when Procompsignathus was first discovered, it was believed to have been an early direct ancestor, sequentially predating Compsignathus. But as with the Proceratosaurus and the Ceratosaurus, though they had similar shapes, they, that didn't mean that they were necessarily closely related, and Proceratosaurus and Ceratosaurus are not. Neither is Procompsignathus and Compsignathus. Uh, Wu concedes he often wonders about what these animals would truly be like if they weren't clones, but actual dinosaurs from the past. He hopes Grant and paleontologists like Grant will compare Jurassic Park's animals against the fossil record and see what similarities and differences there are. Apatosaurus. Apparently, apatosaur excretions do not decompose readily, we're told. And then we get into Velociraptors. The animal is a species of Mongoliensis because it's extracted from amber that was collected in Mongolia. So it's presumed that this, is, uh, this raptor is Mongoliensis, whereas the raptor known from Montana, where Grant was digging, is an Antiropus. 
We learn they've bred eight raptors, they're all adults, and the females are the real hunters, according to Regis. They won't be on the tour, according to Wu. They're kept in a holding pen on page 114. Tim says the Velociraptor is known to be a small carnivore that hunted in packs like Deinonychus on page 115, and Grant agrees, adding that Deinonychus is now considered a Velociraptor. This is not true, but through the exertion of Crichton's artistic license, it becomes true in the universe of this novel. Evidence of pack hunting is said to be circumstantial, but they're said to be very smart and large-brained, more intelligent than most dinosaurs. At the raptor pen, before the raptors are visible, they can be heard snorting in the dense ferns. Their feet can be heard crunching on the ground, and there is a long silence. The velociraptor behavior while hunting is motionless. Grant sees that the velociraptors have large dark eyes, which watch coldly, with skulls that are two feet long with a pointed snout, a long row of teeth running back to the hole of the auditory meatus, which, uh, which they say instead of ear, and it reminds him of a large lizard or crocodile. The skin is leathery with a pebbled texture and the same coloration as the infant, yellow-brown with darker reddish markings, like the stripes of a tiger. The forelimb is strongly muscled with three grasping fingers ending with curved claws. They are powerful, have six-foot-tall bodies, stiff balancing tails, limbs with curving claws, and open jaws with rows of jagged teeth. A raptor attack is a coordinated and sudden pack attack from the left and right. The charging raptors cover 10 yards to the fence with shocking speed. They can leap bodily off the ground and strike with what are described as big dagger claws on their hind legs. The twin bursts of hot sparks and further distinction of a third animal suggests that only three raptors strike at them during the encounter. Remember, there are eight of them. The third strike comes at, quote, chest height from the final raptor, which at 200 pounds, a strike at that height, a strike that high and heavy would take a man off his feet easily. As the group leaves, Grant counts at least five heads poking out of the foliage and ferns. They emit snarls and low reptilian hisses on page 117, and they smell of the odor of decay, and they stare coldly. The attack takes about six seconds, occurring with astonishing speed. We're told coordinated attacks don't require language, as chimps do it. According to Ellie, Grant says they're much faster than any living reptile. He guesses this is twice as fast as a Komodo dragon. And Malcolm elaborates, suggesting cheetah speed, up to 70 miles per hour. They dart forward like birds. Speed like this is only known among small mammals, like the mongoose, the secretary bird of Africa, or the cassowary. In fact, Grant believes they're most like the cassowary, a deadly, swift menace, a clawed, ostrich-like bird of New Guinea. And we'll return to the cassowary shortly. These velociraptors look like reptiles with the skin and general appearance of reptiles, but they move like birds with the speed and predatory intelligence of birds, concludes Malcolm. And our last character here, it looks like a black man in coveralls. This man comes running to the sound of the electric fences, erupting with sparks and snarls from the velociraptors. This gentleman runs toward the sounds of a dinosaur attack to see if everyone was okay. This guy was coming to save a life, and that's commendable. And this crewman is indoctrinated into the secrecy of the park because after the raptor attack against the fence, and after Malcolm's jibe that the raptors are, quote, not too smart, the worker doesn't blow the whistle on how dinosaurs have escaped and killed his colleagues, as evidenced in the bite of the raptor in Chapter 2. Instead, he just cautions, you'd be glad for that fence, senor. After Malcolm has a go at the raptors suggesting that they aren't that smart, the black man in coveralls pauses, squints at Malcolm through the afternoon sunlight, like this is like, literally a western at high noon, and he offers his advice. This guy has seen some things. It is possible that this guy is one of the two black crewmen who medevaced the sick worker in Chapter 2. There's, like, not a lot of specific connectivity there, but, you know, other than him being black, but this is a knowing pause before he responds to Malcolm, and it suggests that he's acutely aware of what these raptors can do. And then he turned away, as if, that's all I have to say about that. 
So chalk this one up to uh, one of the side characters we need a spinoff for. Come on, Universal. Disney Plus would do it. Localities. Uh, we have a corridor between the nursery and the control room. Uh, this chapter has us exiting the nursery with the infant raptor and proceeding to control, which we passed earlier. We don't get many new details on how it looks, but we do get to see it in action, sort of. And when they head out to the holding pen, Regis specifically says they all have to go downstairs, recalling that, of course, they're on the second floor, still of the visitor center. Control. This is behind thick glass, and the room is dark. The many monitors are off, except for three that display spinning numbers in the image of a large boat on page 113. The docking must be assisted by the control room in some way. The spinning numbers must be measurements that influence their docking. And docking takes a bit more time, too, because the tour has time to go and visit the raptor's holding pen uh, while they are waiting for this docking to complete. Isla Nubar. One of the things this island doesn't have is a good harbor or even a good dock, we're told on page 114. When the seas are rough, it's a, quote, a little hairy to get the ship in. So again, how on earth was Jurassic Park planning on bringing guests to the island? It sounded earlier in Chapter 17, Isla Nublar, that they didn't make it a common practice of arriving by helicopter, which leaves boating. But now we're, we're, we're hearing that they don't have a good harbor or, or a dock, that, that things get hairy if there's chop or if the seas are rough. And gee, what might the waves be like 100 miles out in the open ocean on occasion? Yeah, they might be a little rough once in a while. That's just um, unbelievable, but oh well. Uh, the grounds outside the visitor center and the power plant. The visitor center here is called the, quote, main building on page 115, which those visiting the holding pen go behind. This is considered the, quote, visitor area. So like this northern fenced off section of the island is um, the visitor area. And this is where the visitor center and I imagine the bungalows and things like that, are. they're all within this fenced area. Uh, this is considered the visitor area, which they leave behind en route to the raptor holding pen on page 116. Beyond the visitor's area, there's a low concrete generator shed, which smells of gasoline and emits a low hum. This is the island's power plant, and inside is a, quote, big generator, according to Grant. The plant extends two stories below the ground level, containing a vast complex of winding turbines and piping that runs down into the earth, lit by harsh electric bulbs. Malcolm says that they're generating enough power here for a, quote, small city. A few yards north of the power plant, the sound of bleating emits from an animal enclosure with approximately 50 to 60 goats. Behind the shed and animal enclosure is a dirt path leading through a dense bamboo grove, presumably further in the northern direction, until they reach the Velociraptor holding pen. And the Velociraptor holding pen. Where the eight adult vol Velociraptors are kept before they're eventually integrated into the park setting. It is located, quote, around back of the two-story glass and girder visitor center, past the support facility. Uh, don't get too close to the fence, warns Regis. At the end of the dirt path, through a dense bamboo grove, the pen is surrounded by double-layered chain-link fence that's 12 feet high with spirals of barbed wire at the top, and there's an electric hum along the outer fence. Inside the double fences is a dense cluster of large ferns five feet high. These ferns obscure visibility, and the raptor holding pen contains raptors that have learned the man is easy to kill. We have some allusions and references. Uh, the first is the game of playing a little pickle. This is a reference to a schoolyard game that we used to call running bases in my schoolyard, where there are three players, two throwers and one runner, and the runner is caught between the bases in a sort of monkey in the middle way as the throwers try to tag the runner out. And I can't imagine how only two people will be able to do this, so I think this is actually referring to just tossing the ball around, or as they say in the Field of Dreams, they call it, have a catch. <laughs> Alcatraz! We've got two more sentences in this chapter about control, which further make Jurassic Park feel like Alcatraz. Quote, the mainland is more than 100 miles away. It takes almost a day to get there by boat, says Wu. And 
2, uh, quote, the animals are genetically engineered to be unable to survive in the real world. They can only live here in Jurassic Park. They are not free at all. They are essentially our prisoners, adds Wu on page 113. You see how this is like Alcatraz, right? Linnaeus's epigraph. Linnaeus's epigraph says reptiles are abhorrent compared with what Grant thinks here, believing it's, quote, no wonder men hated reptiles on page 117. Crichton alludes to Linnaeus's epigraph from the beginning of the novel, offering it as Grant's insight as well. It shows that mammals don't share a common perspective as reptiles, that for these two animal groups, they are at odds. For a mammal like man, there is something indescribably alien about the way reptiles hunted their prey. No wonder men hated reptiles. The stillness, the coldness, the pace was all wrong. To be among alligators or other large reptiles was to be reminded of a different kind of life, a different kind of world, now vanished from the earth, on page 117. And Linnaeus' quote is, quote, reptiles are abhorrent because of their cold body, pale color, cartilaginous skeleton, filthy skin, fierce aspect, calculating eye, offensive smell, harsh voice, squalid habitation, and terrible venom, wherefore the creator has not exerted his powers to make many of them. This is the first time Grant will say something is alien to him. After this, it will be computers as they tour the control center. And in both cases, Grant is using alien not that they are foreign to him, but that they differ in nature or character to the point of incompatibility with him. In Grant, computers and velociraptors. Yeah, they don't mix together. There you go. Richard Owen is alluded to. Grant alludes to Richard Owen and some of his founding principles upon the dinosauria. Owen was an English biologist, comparative anatomist, and paleontologist, and was considered an outstanding naturalist with a remarkable gift for interpreting fossils, says Wikipedia. He was a well-published leading mind in zoology and biology and won a load of awards, but also he looked pretty intimidating, like the Crypt Keeper, if the Crypt Keeper was in Pride and Prejudice. So he had that going for him, too. Owen initially believed dinosaurs were reptile-slash-crocodile-like, but also that they were bird-like. Tenontosaurus, the raptors are reportedly known to be able to fell animals that weigh up to a thousand pounds. Remember, they themselves only weigh 200 pounds each, like the Tenontosaurus. Tenontosaurus teleti is a 23-foot-long iguanodon-like animal from the Aptian age of the early Cretaceous, discovered in Montana's Cloverly Formation, the fossils being discovered in 1903. Its holotype fossils are also in the American Museum of Natural History, and they comprise a partial skeleton. It was a herbivore whose name means sinew lizard, and with tenanto having a similar Greek root word as tendon, you can imagine, and, uh, and soros meaning lizard. In its species name honors Lloyd Tillett. If you look up a picture of this animal, it's usually portrayed covered in raptors attacking it because the fossils were discovered surrounded by the remains of four Deinonychus specimens. And note, not Velociraptor remains, because Velociraptors are obviously from the late Cretaceous of Mongolia, not the early Cretaceous of the U.S. But recall, Crichton took creative license to rename the Deinonychus Velociraptor for the purposes of this novel. So either Deinonychus were like seagulls or buzzards eating the dead animal, or they were like wolves and lions coordinating attacks to take down larger prey. And we've heard, we've heard Velociraptors kind of referred to it like tigers a couple times. I think tigers hunt alone, I think. Stylistic techniques. Uh, we have italics. You don't know for sure? Uh, is asked on page 111. Now imagine a herd of such animals as we keep here, says Wu. So here we have italics just offering further emphasis on the subject of a sentence so we know what uh, Crichton is making a particular point to make here. Mongoliensis and Antiropus, as well as Velociraptor, Deinonychus, Stegosaurus, and Tenontosaurus are all italicized as well. Um, this is kind of in following with the, the academic paper style of italicizing the proper names of the scientific names of animals as they're being spoken. As well, we have he's hunting us on page 117, is a thought that gives Grant a chill, and it's written in italics, as if this is a thought that's suddenly coming to him, and it gives him a shiver. So that's kind of neat, too. 
the pace was all wrong. Uh, suggests Grant that the velociraptors and reptiles behave more in ways that are entirely unintuitive to the mammalian experience. Uh, we just don't see the world the same way. And again, think back to the pilot episode epigraphs, as I mentioned earlier, and the quick discussion on snakes and reptiles licking their eyeballs and crawling all over each other in mangled heaps of bodies. Tim also swears in italics, and Ellie admits the raptor attack happens so fast in you know, italics. So when people are pressed, the italics come out. Be glad for that fence, senor says the black man in coveralls to Malcolm, and I can't help but think that the italics on senor, which is a customary sign of respect, may be given extra emphasis because he may be indicating less than respect while saying it. Or put differently, he's saying, with all due respect, buddy, be thankful those fences were there. Oh, and the final one here we got, I shall be extremely interested to see the control room now, says Malcolm, with emphasis on extremely, because man-hunting velociraptors with a taste for killing humans are even more dangerous than just regular velociraptors, which are already said to be the most rapacious dinosaurs that have ever lived. Therefore, how they are controlled is even more important. Ellipses, it shows itself to be flawed, says Sattler. The open-ended ellipses welcomes Wu to finish the sentence. So there's, here ellipses is used as kind of an invitation to, to continue the sentence. M-dash, we get, the M-dash here is fun. The velociraptor, M-dash, you said it was a Mongoliensis? where the M-dash serves to introduce the point of a sentence. So that's uh, somebody asking a question. Then later, the M-dash serves as a parenthesis, where Regis is interrupted from speaking. M-dash, he glanced at his watch, M-dash, and then resumes speaking on page 114. And then again, we have, quote, Of course, this animal didn't realize that he had been spotted, that he M-dash. And here, the M-dash again serves as a way to graphically represent a sudden interruption. So here, that stylistic technique is three different ways in one chapter. Uh, we have a colon. Colon gets used a couple times, so I wonder, colon, have they learned somewhere along the line that humans are easy to kill? This colon presents an excellent cliffhanger at, at the end of this chapter, which I think we can all enjoy. The colon separates apart from the rest of the text. What is the consequence up to this point of the novel? Also, the colon is used thusly. The power plant actually extended two stories below the ground level. Colon, a vast complex of winding turbines and piping that ran down in the earth, lit by harsh electric bulbs. 116. A colon is to give emphasis, present dialogue, introduce a list or text to clarify a composition's title, which this colon doesn't really do. I kinda, it just kind of lists features one would find inside the shed, but it's not an itemized list, or a bulleted, bulleted list, or a sequential list, and usually listed items, when not in a bulleted form, use semicolons between list items to separate everything, which it doesn't do. In other words, this colon is used like somebody who is in ninth grade. And more problematic is how this is shoehorned into this contrived, what I'll call, exposition. This description of the power plant isn't being spoken by anyone, and nobody sees it. It's just expositional text revealing what is inside this low concrete shed that's humming. Nobody can see the two stories down. Nobody can see the harsh electric lights. This sentence seems like an afterthought added after everything had been put together. It just doesn't fit here nor follow the common practice that Crichton generally employs of having characters observe, opine, or speak for the purposes of description, elaboration, and exposition. In fact, generally, Crichton is excellent at this because his characters actually characterize the bias behind an argument, a motivation or a perspective, whereas this is just some haphazardly added bit of data, some omniscient narrator dropped in here, and it shows. Casually, you blow right by this, but here's a, a moment where some combination of authors or editors or something uh, have tweaked something, maybe on the fly, and the regular, seamless, and characterized exposition we're frankly privileged to get in this novel doesn't hold up to the standard in this example.
In terms of literary techniques, we have analogies. So here's an analogy. Quote, I don't know if you've ever seen the seen elephant droppings, but they are substantial. Each spore is roughly the size of a soccer ball. Imagine the droppings of a brontosaur ten times as large. Now imagine the droppings of a herd of such animals as we keep here. So here, uh, Henry Wu is using the analogy of a big pile of plop from an elephant, and then elaborating upon that. So he's giving you a reference, the analogy of elephants pooping at the zoo, <laughs> which, we listen, we've all seen that. And then, and then, uh, and then scaling it up for a herd of apatosaurs. Uh, Wu also mentions the dung beetle as a mechanism for breaking down elephant spores, hence they aim to create a species to break down the sauropod spores. Idioms, quote, get a little hairy when the boat comes in on rough seas, says Arnold on page 114. I looked into the idiom, and it sounds like this is a military term originating somewhere in around 1935 when a troop went out on patrol and things went poorly. They said things uh, went a little hairy, and this possibly be, is because it made the hair their hair stand on the stand up on the back of their necks or something like that. That's one explanation I saw. How does that sound? Metaphors, quote: twin bursts of hot sparks describe when the first raptors strike the electric fence. And using the word twin suggests not that not just that there was two bursts of sparks, but that they are born at the same time that the coordinated attack was in perfect timing, that they, they both strike at just the same time. This is quite showing that their collaborative attacks are very coordinated. Their strikes almost surgical in their timing, and that's impressive wordplay. Foreshadowing. Malcolm is chiefly the agent of foreshadowing in this novel, and he continues to be so here. So I wonder, have they learned somewhere along the line that humans are easy to kill? The group fell silent as they walked. In any case, Malcolm said, I shall be extremely interested to see the control room now. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, what are some of our motifs in this book? Uh, the illusion of control. Grant tells us in this chapter that he suspects, quote, even young kids learn the complicated names of dinosaurs as a way of exerting power over the giants, a way of being in control. And then we have, I guess in this chapter, a couple... I mean, in this book, there are a few characters who do not know the names of dinosaurs. We know Malcolm has trouble with the Procomsignathus, and I think Gennaro does as well. Wu doesn't seem to know the names of all the dinosaurs, but maybe he does. He seems to be a little, like, too busy to learn them. And Nedry doesn't know the names of dinosaurs. So here we've got a couple characters that have trouble with the animals, uh, and they don't know the names of them. I, I, I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, Chris Pratt just sticking his hand out and telling them to stop, but... Um, Maybe this is an example. If you don't, if they're not respecting the animals, they don't even bother to learn their names. Maybe you don't stand much of a chance out in the wild against them. You know, your level of respect for them doesn't exist high enough. Sketchy science. The famous lysine contingency comes into uh, us in this chapter. Wu describes how the dinosaurs they've cloned are reliant upon them for essential doses of lysine, which without they fall into a coma and die within 12 hours. This is a safety protocol to prevent animals from escaping. However, looking a bit more closely at what lysine is, it's an amino acid commonly used in proteinogenesis, a process by which your body automatically performs, which incorporates the amino acids biosynthetically into proteins during translation, whatever that means. That's about as general as I'm able to convert what I read about this into, uh, but know that these proteins that are created perform a, quote, vast array of functions within organisms, including catalyzing metabolic reactions, DNA replication, responding to stimuli, providing structure to cells and organisms, and transporting molecules from one location to another. These all sound very important to do that thing called living. So lysine is important to live. 
because it's essential for proteins to do the things that they do to help living things live. I've read that, in fact, quote, the most common role for lysine is proteinogenesis, playing an important role in protein structure. So, Crichton has identified a great element upon which to focus a control mechanism for biological animals. No problem here yet. The sketchy part comes next. Did you know the human body also does not synthesize lysine? Even, I mean, Jurassic Park did not have to meddle with our DNA for us to also not synthesize lysine. Even though it's essential in humans, though. It must be obtained through diet. So we as humans are not unlike Jurassic Park's dinosaurs. We also must have lysine in our diets or else we fail. Lack of lysine plays a role in anemia, protein energy malnutrition, and neurological disabilities like epilepsy, ataxia, spasticity, and psychomotor impairment, among other things. But like, take that with a grain of salt. I am likely overlooking a load of details. I am just a man. Have you ever worried that you're not eating enough lysine? Of course not, because it's available in high-protein foods like eggs, meat, specifically red meats like lamb, pork, and poultry, soy, and beans, and peas, and cheese, fish like cod and sardines, as well as in cereal grains, legumes, and pulses. Basically, lysine is found in food. Bonus lysine is good. It's added to animal feed in multi-billion dollar global animal feed industries, where it helps optimize the growth of livestock like hogs and chickens. So... Unless the animals are being fed something other than food, they should be getting lysine. It's just part of a healthy diet. Jurassic Park handlers would have to try awfully hard to provide the dinosaurs with food that lacked lysine, or in order for them to be dependent upon their tablets. And escaped animals, so long as they're eating food, should be able to find lysine as well. Perhaps Wu made them reliant upon a higher quantity of lysine than usual? I don't know. Park management. They, they must import food to the island every two weeks, we're told, on page 112. And there is no way an island this small can support these animals for any amount of time, says Wu. And I'd like to think that their waste management would be equally challenging, that it'd be, you know, th this dinosaur dung that they've, they've bred compies to try and break down. Like, I don't think they could catch up to that either. I think that they would have to be deported every two weeks as well. That's just me. And here we learn that the, the supply boat, the A&B, delivers supplies every two weeks from the mainland. Bow down before the master. It must be noted, Crichton knew full well that Deinonychus anteropus wasn't a velociraptor, but found that the name velociraptor was way cooler sounding, and so took artistic license and just ignored the name Deinonychus altogether, thus naming his villain Velociraptor instead. It's not a mistake. It's artistic license. And perhaps that's what we could say about almost all of this novel. Is this novel a great scientific paper? No, absolutely not, full stop. But, but did Crichton's choices when using artistic license make the final 200 pages of this novel into some of the most intense dinosaur science fiction the world has ever known? Yeah, it did. So I'm willing to cut him some slack. His instincts for having nature run amok are very strong. We need to take a break from calling Crichton out on his sketchy science and nitpicking all the mistakes in the last few chapters. It feels dishonest as a fan to say you love something and then poke and pick at all its warts and scars. But the truth is, we love it despite its flaws, and maybe that's what love is. We need to greatly appreciate that Crichton is actually masterfully stringing up a series of marionettes, and he's the puppet master that's going to make them all dance. All of the details, all of the science, the locations, the characters, the graphs, and the charts, and the dialogue, it's all going to pay off later in the book. There are no empty calories in here. From the start of the tour right up to when they exit the Land Cruisers to mess around with that Stegosaurus, Crichton has been juggling details and the plot, and the, as the chapters go on, he's adding more and more insane items to the juggler's trick. Like when that busker gets up on a unicycle and juggles bowling pins, chainsaws, lit torches, and then a newborn baby at the same time. 
That's what Creighton's doing. Literally, this may be Creighton at his very finest. The teratogenic substances, the eggs, the ultraviolet lights, the security cards all play a part in the final chapters. The double redundancy, safety procedures, and systems of control are all carefully erected to sound good, but reveal their flaws without our noticing, unless we're Malcolm. And we're even attacked by a pack of man-eating velociraptors who've acquired the taste for human blood in this chapter. He's setting up a Rube Goldberg contraption, or lined up the dominoes, or whatever metaphor works for you, and he's about to let this thing loose on people. He just needs Nedry to execute the command. It's such a cool book. Cloning dinosaurs. Through the process of cloning animals, it's easy to lose count of how many viable species they've created here at Jurassic Park, because as a new species develops over six months, they realize an error has been made in the DNA, a release or gene doesn't operate, a hormone isn't released, or other problems in the developmental sequence. The natural park management question to me is, what is done with the medical and biological waste after all these eggs, embryos, and terminated lives are discarded? We know that there must be thousands of eggs discarded after the 0.4% success rate leaves them with 99.6% of the production floor a waste. Not to mention these six-month-old animals who have releaser genes or hormones failing. Remember, these animals grow very fast, reaching maturity in four years. At six months, they could be hundreds of pounds on route to becoming multiple tons in weight. I wonder what this process is. Practically, it makes sense to have an on-site crematorium, maybe? But better than shipping it all away, I don't know what they would do. Who knows? Again, I'd love to have a zoo agent to speak with about this stuff. In terms of cloning animals, it sounds like there is some picking and choosing going on at Jurassic Park. When they discover the natural waste problem, they bred jackal-like scavengers to break down the herbivorous spores, which was a good thing. Wu also suggests that they chose not to breed the largest of the, dino uh, of the sauropods because feeding and maintaining such immense animals was impossible on an island the size of Isla Nublar. So they must have like a couple extra species in their back pocket that they could be breeding, but they choose not to. And that's kind of interesting. In terms of a timeline, we learned that there are three batches of compies really six months apart. And uh, that would suggest that maybe the first batch of compies were really were made. They might be, I guess, relative new additions to the park. The first batch being released maybe only 18 months ago, or something like that. I don't know. Three groups, six months apart, anyhow. Grant believes that kids are fascinated by dinosaurs because these, quote, giant creatures personified the uncontrollable force of looming authority. They were symbolic parents, fascinating and frightening like parents. And kids love them as they love their parents. He also suspects even young kids learn their names, acquiring the ability to say, quote, complicated names as a way of, quote, exerting power over the giants, a way of being in control. Of the dinosaurs, Crichton has Grant employ the name Stegosaurus as an example of a difficult dinosaur name to pronounce that young kids learn. And while this might be an early favorite dinosaur name for young kids to learn, it's hardly an example of a difficult name to pronounce. The Procomsignathus is more challenging, and while it refers to an animal we've already learned about in the novel, it doesn't represent a likely species that a young child will blurt out. But if we look at the animals on InGen's list, we see that there's a good example already being cloned on the island, the Uoplocephalus. That's a mouthful, plus cohesive with the rest of the story. What's the worst or most complicated dinosaur name? <laughs> One that comes to mind, or comes to my mind, is the Opistocolicaudia, a sauropod named after its caudal vertebrae uh, with a very Greek nomenclature. But as an English speaker, there are all kinds of names that are either given to honor Polish scientists, or now it's common to have, have names that refer to the localities from which the dinosaurs are discovered, but then using ancient ancestral names for the lo those localities because dinosaurs are ancient animals from before the modern names of the localities. So we get ancient, oftentimes aboriginal names for localities in South America, China, and Africa that just don't play nice with the English language. And you get some very difficult to pronounce names as a result. But 
that's enough complaining about how dinosaur names don't conform to Anglo-centric worldviews. So <laughs> that's enough of that. It's not a fight I'm worth, uh, worth having. Elaborating on Velociraptors, Grant also says that there are at least some species of dinosaurs are believed to have been, quote, quite intelligent. But nobody knows for sure on page 116, just as we segue to meeting the Velociraptors, which is no coincidence. We're told the Velociraptors have, quote, rows of jagged teeth during the quick attack outside the holding pen on 117. I have to take some umbrage with this. It's a little unclear as to what exactly I think is going on here. It sounds like the teeth are jagged and that they have rows of teeth in their jaws, which isn't quite what's happening here. Rows of teeth sounds like something a shark would have, where there's your teeth, and then behind those teeth is another row of teeth, and coming behind that row of teeth is another row of teeth. That's rows of teeth. That's what that means. But even though it sounds like Crichton is saying that, what he's really saying is that there are multiple raptors, and the attacking pack of raptors has, between them all, multiple rows of teeth. That sentence could have been a bit clearer. As well, the teeth themselves, I do not think, are meant to be, quote, jagged teeth. They aren't covered in pointy hunks like the peaks of a mountain range. Rather, the teeth appear in a jagged row in the jaws of all these raptors. While a velociraptor tooth does have a serrated edge, it'd be impossible to view those serrations without a very close inspection. So the teeth do not appear jagged themselves, but rather the row of teeth is jagged looking in their jaws. The dromosaurian curved foot claw is described like a dagger on page 117. Though a dagger is commonly a straight and pointy blade, made for poking or stabbing, whereas a raptor claw is demonstrably curved, often described as a scythe. To consider more accurately, consider the harpy knife, or blade, uh, which is named after the wicked talons of the harpy eagle and its incredibly recurved and devastating claws. That derives its name also from the Greek mytholo mythology's harpy, the monstrous animal with a bird's wings and talons. They're almost a complete parabola. That's what shape these claws in. That's how recurved they are. They're often described as sickle-shaped, so dagger claws doesn't cut it. This is not what the claws were like. Now, it's got me wondering, does Crichton describe the Dromosaurian claw correctly at all in this book or not? In episode 11, plans were told Velociraptors had a single-toed claw, which curved six inches long and was capable of ripping open its prey, on page 56. Then in episode 11, plans is further described as a, quote, devastating claw on the foot, on page 57. But... We're also told that you know, this dagger-shaped run, you know, it sticks out and it's not good. Uh, but no, the cassowary's devastating claw is dagger-like. It's a straight point matching the description Crichton's using. So do you believe that Crichton envisions his velociraptors with a sickle-shaped six-inch claw true to the fossil, noting that sickle and scythe are not mentioned in this book ever, or like a devastating dagger claw, just like in a cassowary? My hunch is... Crichton had literally no idea. <laughs> visible minorities. For the second time, we declaratively get visible minorities in this novel. Quote, a black man in coveralls came running up to them on page 118 in this chapter. The other time was when Regis helicoptered in the victim of the backhoe accident in episode 2, Prologue of Bite of the Raptor, where the two black crewmen carried the body of the sick man on page 2. And I say declaratively visible minorities because we're not told specifically that anyone is actually white or Hispanic or anything like that for the rest of the art characters. I presume that they're white by default. And yes, there are some characters with Latino names or surnames like Gutierrez, but we're told quickly that he's an American. Or Dr. Cruz, who, quote, spoke excellent English as a result of training in American medical centers in Baltimore and London. So everyone is passively white Anglo folks. This is how Crichton has written his novel. So in the second instance, we get another declaratively visible minority who is said to be black. And the third character, 
The first two are crewmen, and this character is in coveralls, which, which are symbolic of a meta mechanic or someone employed in maintenance. Or perhaps this is one of the crewmen that was on the helicopter from Chapter 2. That's also a possibility. And this crewman is indoctrinated into the secrecy of Jurassic Park, because after the raptor attack against the fence and after Malcolm's jive that the raptors are not so smart, the worker doesn't blow the whistle on how the dinosaurs have escaped and killed his colleagues, as evidenced in the bite of the raptor. Instead, he just cautions be glad for the fence, senor. This guy was talking to safety inspectors and opts against saying, oh yeah, they're in this pen because they kill people. He's keeping that secret. The other adjective commonly used to describe workers beyond their duties, like guard or pilot, is Tican, which means that they are Costa Rican. Are the people of Costa Rica black? And, you know, I had to look into this. I don't know. So I, I looked at a 2011 census. The population is primarily of Spanish descent, with significant numbers of Italian, German, English, Dutch, French, Irish, Portuguese, and Polish families, as well as a sizable Jewish community, says Wikipedia. Furthermore, it says 83.6% of the population are white or mestizo, the latter defined as a mix of European and Amerindian descent. A mulatto population represents 6.7%, and indigenous peoples comprise 2.4%. So how many Tikans are black? 1.1% are black, or Afro-Caribbean. But when Crichton dreams up a Costa Rican handyman... He thinks of a black man in coveralls. Apparently, InGen isn't just employing, quote, many of the local people in construction from Bahia and Asco, but a whoppingly misrepresentative number of black people, too. Later, on page 209, another moment where Crichton is obviously allowing for the default human being to be Caucasian, he says that, quote, human beings walking around in the streets of the modern world, bouncing their pink new babies, hardly stop to think that the substances at the center of it all, the substance that began the dance of life, was a chemical almost as old as the earth itself. Here we are, Crichton says it specifically. Human beings have pink babies, folks. So I guess that's, you know, the author's worldview. That's just permeating through the background people have, have made comments about how like women and uh visible minorities just are not well represented in the book and you know it speaks for itself right uh, building a mystery what is jurassic park hiding about these raptors in the holding pen why is Wu acting so squeamish about the raptors on 114 well malcolm's got a pretty good idea as to why and we've heard of the raptor slashing people up so uh, that's kind of a mystery we can, we can, I guess, view through the lens of dramatic irony. We know what the problem is, the, the characters do not, and so we, we feel some dread as they move forward. We have dinosaurs on the brain. Grant believes that kids are fascinated by dinosaurs because these, quote, giant creatures personified the uncontrollable force of looming authority. Is that why kids like dinosaurs? They were symbolic parents. Is that why kids like dinosaurs? Fascinating and frightening, like parents. And kids love them as they love their parents. Well, we know, however, that Timmy has a very fractured relationship with his father. He's happy that his dad has moved out now with, his, with the divorce coming up, and Timmy does not love dinosaurs as he loves his parents, as far as we can tell. He would, I suppose, prefer not to have the uncontrollable force of looming authority, i.e. his father, living with them anymore, though. Is there more to unpack between this dinosaur description? Like, is, is, is this flawed? Because it doesn't seem that the guy that likes dinosaurs likes his parents at all, so... There we go. I don't know where Crichton found that idea. We don't hear that Grant loves his parents either. Paleontology. We're told 
The best paleontologists make the best deductions from the fragmented and incomplete fossil record to make the most interesting and progressive theories on the lives and behavior of dinosaurs. Grant provides an example of one of the, these paleontological deductions. The theory that velociraptors are pack hunters is theorized, but difficult to prove. The circumstantial evidence is that they appear quick and strong, but small, so they have to cooperate in groups to take down larger prey, we're told on 115. Some fossil finds so show a, quote, single large prey animal is associated with several raptor skeletons, suggesting they hunted in packs, he adds. Plus, they are large-brained, meaning social behaviors are more possible. Grant recaps a history of paleontology, which begins in the 1820s and 1830s, where the first view of dinosaurs was that they were oversized variants of modern species, on page 119, because it was then believed that nothing could go extinct, God wouldn't allow one of his creations to die. In 1842, Richard Owen, a leading British anatomist of the day, coined the term dinosauria, believing that dinosaurs were a lively combination of birds and crocodiles, but truly gigantic finds, like the Apatosaurus, for example, weighing many, many tons, led many scientists by the turn of the 20th century to believe that they were sluggish, slow-moving reptiles, dominating the image of them as bird-like. Grant falls into the school of thought with Owens that dinosaurs are hot-blooded and very active. All right, we covered a lot of ground. Like I said, this is a big one. It's a big, long episode, but it's a good one. A lot of good stuff in there, too. Um, thank you to my guest today, Benjamin Lewis. I call him Benjamin X. Lewis because I didn't know his middle name, and so I just listed it as X. <laughs> but now he's radioactive, so it works out. This is a good uh, good, good code name. Um, I want to th sign off today thanking, thanking everybody for joining me. If you want to read along in this book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book. We're also not the book of all your life. Jurassic Park cast is, well, for about one hour anyhow. <laughs> Jurassic Park is uh, part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead Graphic Novel, The Second Lap's Graphic Novelette, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.